Welcome back to The Moral Minority Show. I'm Joel Sam, and I'm joined with my co-host, Josh Luckett. Today, we have a special guest to talk about a hot topic, and that's critical race theory. You've probably seen it on your news feeds. You've probably seen it on social media. Some people love it. Some people say it's the work of the devil and it's the end of good society as we know it. Um, so we have my good friend, Jothis James, here to help us discuss this. Uh, Jothis is a PhD candidate at Texas A&M University, where he studies, among other things, uh, critical race theory, um, the philosophy of fashion. That's one of my favorite uh, subtopics that he studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, he approaches philosophy from a, what's called a non-continental lens. Is that correct? Yeah, so... A non-European lens. Non-European, yeah. yeah. So, um, Jothis is well-versed in the topic from an academic perspective, and he's written about it. He's read um, possibly hundreds of books about it, an, an, an enormous amount of books, like more books than you can imagine. And so, um, yeah, I love conversations with Jothis. I'm really excited to have him on the podcast. Um, yeah, Jothis, why don't you take a second to introduce yourself Um kind of in more detail and kind of say who who you are, what you're about. Okay. Um, so I'll do, give a, the type of introduction that'll frame why I say the things I'm about to say <laughs> throughout this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so as Joel said, my name is Jothis. Um, Joel and I are actually from the same ethnic group. Strangely enough, ancestrally from the same region, just two kilometers, not two kilometers, 10 kilometers from uh, each other, uh, which was interesting how we figured that out primarily through Joel's name, which is iconically <laughs> Malayali. Yeah. Um, so I'm a St. Thomas Christian. That's my specific ethnicity. And also uh, it frames my Christian heritage coming out of the Syriac tradition primarily. Um, I'm Malankar Orthodox. Um, and I migrated to the U.S. in 2004, did most of my education here, did a master's in Syriac studies in uh, India, and uh, came back here to do my PhD. And I always knew that I was going to go into philosophy. I just needed time to like prep my application. Everything critical race theory was what I was going to do. And so I primarily applied to universities where I would be able to study that. Um, so my research interests are critical race theory, anti-colonial epistemology. I'll define that eventually. And uh, I am looking also into black aesthetics, but not specifically uh how it has been framed uh, through African-American intellectuals, uh, but more so about dark skin and what is considered beautiful in contrast to dark skin and recentering dark skin as um, the source of beauty. Um, so I'm exploring that as a part of aesthetics as my primary project right now, but I, this is primarily framed under anti-colonial epistemology, which means ways of knowing that can push against colonial powers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a bit about me. Family's in Chicago, but here I am in College Station. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, yeah, Jothis is live with me in studio. He's the first studio guest I've had in a long time, actually, so I'm really excited about this. <laughs> uh, Josh, qu- real quick, what's your reaction to Jothis's, um bio and his research interests i'm really curious as to what you think <laughs> uh i mean just mostly amazed i mean it's a lot of uh i mean for someone who you know i'm i'm, I'm a pretty big reader but i'm not in the uh in the uh more programmatic academic field 
Um, but it, but it's always so impressive to see people who have such a wide range of, of, uh, of, of knowledge and are so well read and studied in their field. And you mentioned how many books he's written, and that's pretty crazy. Red, red, um, not written. Red. Okay, <laughs> I was about to say written a book. Uh, <laughs> I was like, yeah, but I was like, man, he's he's chugging uh, out. But but yeah, that many that many red books is still pretty pretty impressive. I think uh, I think particularly what interests me the most is is getting to hear you speak from a non-Western perspective mm-hmm. because I have to push, I have to push. Uh, particularly a lot of my evangelical constituents uh, uh, in uh, away from that. But I still have so much Western ideology within me, even the way I understand justice, the way I understand um, <clears throat> guilt and innocence and law. And uh, so much of my paradigm is influenced by Western ideology because I'm whether I want to believe it or not, I'm, I'm, I'm Western, <laughs> I'm an American. And so, uh, or, or definitely, uh, culturally that's my heritage, you know, from, um, from the African slaves on. And so, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be great to hear, particularly to hear critical race theory from that, um, from that perspective is going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to, to kick things off, um, for our audience and for us as well, can you define critical race theory for us, Jothis, like as broadly as possible? Maybe maybe we should start with critical theory in general, because that is the overarching thing. So just like a one minute definition of critical oh, theory, okay. one minute definition of critical race theory. I know I'm forcing you to like yeah, cut yeah, so yeah. much oh, out I, by I, abbreviating, <laughs> but we really this is yeah. uh, this is podcast world. All right, so. Um, this is interesting. I think the naming of critical race theory, critical race theory, has led to a lot of confusion. Um, and actually, uh, Tommy Curry, a scholar, one of the major figures in critical race theory in twenty first century right now, um, identifies this issue not because it's just simply by the naming. I see it as part of the naming, uh, but more so in terms of the uh, disciplinary shift critical race theory as scholarship has taken, um, moving more towards a European-influenced style of doing it. So to define critical race, uh, let's, I guess, define critical theory first, as you said. So critical theory comes out of um, continental Europe. So this is a post-Kantian philosophical approach, um, and it's primarily rooted in uh, phenomenology, existentialism, which means studying things as they are and things as they are given, and existentialism, which would be uh, the crises of existence. Um, so you can think of um, Sartre, um, Camus, um, Foucault, Judith Butler, uh, Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, Mm-hmm. Um, these are all theorists coming out of the critical theory tradition, and they primarily theorize about what is going on in the world. And it takes it goes into post-structuralism, post-modernism. You see strains of it, and uh, Derrida, um, all yeah. these folks. There's a style of writing which is fixated on um, 
giving a very rich account of what is the case right. and as well as critiquing the establishments there are and identifying what can be done and identifying movements as they go forward. You know, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I, I would identify a lot of those philosophers with existentialism and with post-structuralism, but I didn't realize all of them were connected to critical theory. I guess I didn't realize critical theory was so broad in that sense. Yeah. What would you say is the primary thesis of critical theory? So that's because a, I have a definition in my head. I'm curious as to so th that's the thing. There is many disagreements about mm. this thing, but critical theory just expansively follows European philosophy mm -hmm. as it develops. Um, post Wittgenstein, I would say primarily coming out of uh, Hegel, mm -hmm. uh, a Hegelian tradition. So think about Marx and everything. They critique coming out of those traditions, um, and then finally going down to. Uh, Heidegger, post-Heidegger, you see d definite development of that style in Husserl, um, and this heavy psychoanalysis, so the influence of Freud, Jung, uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis, Zizek, you know, Slavoj Zizek is a very famous uh, critical theorist or social commentator and public philosopher. So ultimately, their aim is to critique society um, and say these are problems where power dynamics are causing issues, uh, way modernity is going forward, either deconstructing many elements that are fundamental in critiquing that. So you can think of like Art Nouveau um, or, um, you know, modern, not modern, but, you know, contemporary art. A lot of that influence of deconstructing what is established and what is canonical um, is primarily the mode of that tradition. But okay. I'm not an expert sure, in it. Sure. Uh, but I know that there isn't a single thesis that defines it because they all critique each other right, okay. successively, uh, challenging whatever mode has been established preceding them. So probably about 10, 15 years is the most a certain theorist's uh, judgment holds. Yeah. yeah. You know, the way I have it in my head as a non-philosopher is that critical theory essentially says that all people in social groups are either part of the oppressors or part of the oppressed. Mm -hmm. And then with critical race theory that applies that specifically to race, saying that race is a central power dynamic in society. Uh, would you say that's correct? I mean, is that overly reductionistic? Oh, I mean, or, or does that capture the essence of it as far as it connects to broader society at large? Yeah, so you see, um, I guess it'll help if I define critical race theory then. Mm -hmm. uh, so critical race theory, though it has the word critical and theory in it, is uh, not the same thing as critical theory mm. and does not even come out of the same tradition. Oh, really? Yeah. So interesting. Okay. They are, uh, it is an independently formed tradition, primarily looking out of legal studies. So Derek Bell um, and Kimberly Crenshaw um, are two major figures that many people recognize. And what they did was ultimately look at the legal structure of the United States. What are contradictions within it? If there are changes made in legislation, why does it happen? And ultimately, they identified, and this specifically goes back to Derek Bell, is the idea of interest convergence. So the only time things change in the legal structure within the United States to serve uh, racialized groups, primarily African Americans, is if it is in the interest of whites. Mm -hmm. um, so that is what critical theory, uh, sorry, critical race theory is rooted as in legal studies mm -hmm. and analysis of the legal systems. And obviously that influenced uh, later theorists uh, like Richard Delgado and um, obviously Tommy, Tommy Curry contemporarily was trying to revive that originary source of it. Mm. 
where it's ultimately critique of the legal systems and analyzing the legal uh, proceedings to see how it maintains the status quo. And yeah. Derek Bell ultimately argued, and this is, I think, is a fundamental tenant of critical race theory, is that uh, he's a racial realist. So many people get, when they hear racial realism, they're conflating it with, you know, like neo-Nazis or something like that, <laughs> or, uh, you know, eugenicists from the 20s or something. But Derek Bell's argument of racial realism is that uh, race is a salient social factor and we have to treat it as such, even though the biological arguments about races being different mm -hmm. is not really the case. Mm -hmm. um, and then he also argues for this uh, thesis that racism is permanent. So in the sense that racism in the United States is not going to go anywhere. So many uh, Afro-pessimists like Wilderson, who come later on, mm. uh, are influenced by that. But this it would be anachronistic to call Derek Bell an Afro-pessimist, sure. but um, ultimately the critique is that the, all we can hope for are peaks of progress. So okay. occasionally there will be peaks, but generally the trend is that this discrepancy will exist because it is codified in the legal structure of the United States from the uh, inception of the Constitution all the way mm -hmm. until now. Mm -hmm. um, and all we can do is critique it and hope to modify it. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think I was reading today that uh, some, some connect critical race theory to Marxism and we can go, mm -hmm. we can have that discussion later. But, uh, I think it may have been Derek Bell in his own words, who said he was primarily inspired by W.E.B. Du Bois and other black thinkers. Mm -hmm. And he kind of like what you were saying, where critical race theory doesn't stem from critical theory. Would you say that Derek Bell did not get any of his ideas from the Western tradition, but rather the black philosophical tradition, or is that overly reductionistic? Um, we do have to recognize uh, any black theorist that, ha I mean, maybe it has changed since the black power movement in the 70s, um, where a lot of uh, political prisoners, um, such as black nationalists who were imprisoned strategically by the U.S. Uh, to prevent them from mobilizing. Uh, outside of that, most of the uh, black intellectuals have been trained in the white academy. Mm. So even Du Bois uh, was trained, they read the classics, uh, Elaine Locke was trained, uh, Frederick Douglass was self-taught, um, but nonetheless, the literature he's reading is not necessarily literature uh, composed by black authors primarily. It is mm -hmm. going to come from the Western canon, right? Um, so we have to recognize yeah. that, yeah. So- Yes, no, that's a really, it's a really helpful thing to remember. That's what I was mentioning earlier of like, um, even my tradition, in the the black theological and um black um leadership tradition throughout american history is has had to work with the tools of western ideas and so martin luther king's biggest um uh his biggest kind of hook on the on the end of the stick for um uh, for the for the white masses that he was trying to persuade was the Constitution mm -hmm. was uh, the uh, was the Judeo Christian as was as it was a Western concept under uh, as a Western concept mm -hmm. um, uh, ethic he had to use those things um, now of course he got aid from Gandhi in his method but really. He used Gandhi's strategy, but used the philosophical and intellectual tools of 
Western ideology. Even his Christian ideology was predominantly Western and didn't have as much of the um, Middle Eastern honor, shame, fear, power um, dynamics to it. Um, and so, so yeah, that's a really good point that you're, uh, and, 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 you know, specifically to Du Bois, I mean, Du Bois was so kind of saturated in whiteness, even though he tried to reject it, that even his idea of the talented 10th mm-hmm. was essentially an idea of, of assimilation. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, he would hate to admit that. And many people would hate to admit that, but it was ultimately this idea that like, it's kind of what we have the, have the danger of running into with Black History Month, mm. where we only talk about the exceptional Black people, and that is the dignity of Black people are the exceptional ones. No, the dignity of Black people is the 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 poor person in the hood. You mm. know, it's every Black person has dignity in their story and in their culture and in the way that they express their their culture. But uh, but yeah, there's so many things that that's why I'm so excited to have you. Is like we can actually have. This, this conversation about critical race theory uh, a little bit more uh, uh, pulled out of the of the Western concepts. Exactly. Um, so you brought up a great point in the sense that they were all generally trained in uh, Western systems. And you see this with Booker T. Washington, right? He's a pragmatist uh, with mm-hmm. how it comes about um, and what his aims are. And his aims are to train black people um, in manual work so that eventually they'll self-develop as a community and then can be respected under white eyes. And that um, ultimately is under integrationist logic. And Du Bois was actually initially um, very much for that too. And that's why he proposed the Talented 10th, but later on in his life. Um, so you're returning to your question about Marxism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these folks in the early uh, like 1900s were influenced by Marxist thought. That is a global thing. It happens in the colonies. So you have to realize all of them are discuss- uh, like communicating uh, with each other. So uh, Gerald Horn's book, The End of Empire, does a great analysis of uh, comparing Indian uh, political movements for independence and the uh, African-American political movements within the U.S. So we have to recognize that is who they were exposed to in these intellectual circles when you are in academia. That is going to be wherever you can find liberation, that's where you're going to gravitate to. Mm -hmm. Um, But Du Bois, towards the end, he recognized it's not going to be satisfactory. Um, and he was working on projects to I'd center uh, blackness. And, you know, he ends up living and uh, dying in Accra, Ghana because of that. Like, he's like fed up because he's like, I tried, you know, I mm-hmm. tried being like an integrationist, you know, appeasing, being polite, this and that. Mm-hmm. It's not working. Um, and it's very interesting. It's not just Du Bois. Almost every black thinker that seriously engages with this comes to this ad uh, towards the end of the career, realizing was well, like, it ain't gonna work to be, try to make an integrationist argument. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so good. You know, that was a. I just got done reading a book about Malcolm X and and Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. and so you can know, you know, Martin comes from the integrationist uh, philosophy of. Of hey, let's let's let America live up. Let's let the empire live up to its benevolent, its uh, its better angels, mm-hmm. and we could have um, a truly 
equal society. But then on the other end, you got Malcolm, who's like the empire will never. It's an empire. It doesn't it? Doesn't uh, you have to use power to overcome it? Um, and uh, and uh, of course, he had a more nationalistic, a black nationalistic perspective, where he was like, no, we we're gonna insulate and create our own table, our own power structures. And use that to be effective mm-hmm. um, within the empire. I, I, I'm curious. Uh, so one of the critiques that have, that that often comes up, Joel mentioned that we might as well dig into it. Uh, one of the critiques that often comes up in my uh, religious tradition uh, when they try to strike down um, critical race theory is this idea that um, – uh, it's too connected to Marxism, mm. uh, and uh, and and Marxism is inherently evil. Therefore, there is no uh, there is no way that uh, critical race theory could be helpful. And the argument uh, is that people. Marxism is atheist. Is that correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, it's inherently evil. You know, because they'll, it's- they'll do the pull quote where Marx says yeah. religion is the opium of masses and they won't read anything else. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. So you, uh, and so, uh, and, and, and my pushback has always been I don't care if it was influenced by Marxism. Marxism, while having holes, was an incredible critique of capitalism. It had holes, significant ones, but it was a great critique of capitalism. Um, and so how would you respond to um, someone who were to say, man, Marxism has so many problems. And if critical race theory is at all influenced by that, um, it's going to be problematic or also and or would you say, yes, maybe some thought leaders who would have also ascribed to critical race theory were influenced by Marxism, but they're not necessarily connected. OK, um, so that question will be better framed if I just trace out a short genealogy. So mm-hmm. somebody like W, someone like W. E. B. Du Bois, um, isn't. Uh, I mean, yes, he had Marxist influences and uh, uh, joined like various communist parties uh, throughout his career. But he isn't a critical race theorist. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be anachronistic to call him that. And it's just like, um, for example, in certain. Uh, fields to misappropriate and claim like okay that person is part of our tradition too by by the mere token of just being either non-white or from your specific ethnic or racial group so that's that is not the case instead uh what is as i said uh with derek bell kimberly crenshaw it's a legal analysis Mm -hmm. it's just simply analyzing the legal structures or uh the play of legislation to figure out how the legislation serves the status quo. Mm-hmm. It does not mm-hmm. have to be a Marxist analysis. When you come to critique it, you can come in many different ways. You can come in and just simply, you're just identifying the symptoms and whether the solution, you're not giving a normative claim. Marxism has a normative claim, um, which is primarily articulated through a certain form of communalism, right? Yeah. Um, but what would you say is the normative claim of Marxism, real quick? So the normative claim for Marxism would be something along the lines of get rid of the boot. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to like pause it as a... I mean, yeah, the, the, 
sometimes it does require violent upheaval, but I don't know how many Marxists in the 21st century would claim that is still uh, possible because the political situations, uh, climate, economic, other many other factors have to align for such a revolution to take place, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but ultimately, Marxism would argue something along the lines of we need to get rid of the uh, dominant class, bourgeoisie, um, and reappropriate the resources um, so that the means of production or the labor that you put in to producing something, um, you're not alienated from it. And by alienation, he means that your labor is not just uh, put into somebody else's hand. The product of your labor is not put into somebody else's hand for them to profit off. You're not just simply working to reach a profit margin, but the work that you do has a productive end to benefit society and in a sense reorganize society so that it's egalitarian in that way. Mm -hmm. What you put in is what you get and you're contributing as a community and benefiting and sharing from the wealth that the community creates. Mm -hmm. So yeah. why would you say that critical race theory is not a normative claim? Um, because it's it's a diagnostic. Mm -hmm. So it is all it's identifying is that these are the gaps within the legislation, or this is how the legislation takes root uh, based on empirical evidence. So incarceration rates, or redlining, economic disparity, murder rates, um, health, uh, al inappropriate allocation of health resources. So you're just identifying, like, look at this. Uh, African Americans are disproportionately negatively affected by this. Um, why is that the case? In the legislation, this law that was passed in the 30s or the law that was passed in the 60s, something like that was responsible for this to come forth, even though in its terminology it was came off as progressive and inclusive or whatever. Um, so it's always following the serpent of U.S. legislation, mm. which you know uh, moves about, and you have to. It's very hard to articulate because every year new situations come about and you have to go back to the legislation and revisit and find out what the issue is. So it's not saying because this is the case that this disparity exists between a racialized population and the dominant population that we have to now redistribute the wealth to make it completely egalitarian. You could use this alongside a Marxist uh, analysis to make a different claim. Mm -hmm. and say that Marxism is the solution uh, for the issues that critical race theory has identified. Mm, okay. Yeah. Is that clear? Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Why do you think a religious tradition, any religious tradition, would reject critical race theory? Um, they would reject critical race theory because it is flouted. So this is, uh, let me just show very interesting things. So I, mm -hmm. I don't know if, uh, obviously, uh, everybody, I hope, has watched the presidential, the first presidential debate, the one that was supposed to be a theatrical mm -hmm. disaster because of how uncivil it was. Uh, <laughs> within that, uh, I remember Joe Biden being asked a question about critical race theory. Mm. Oh, or was it Trump? I know one of them was asked. I think I can't recall who exactly, but somebody was asked a question about critical race theory. What do you think about this? Mm. Um, and that was the first time I've ever heard critical race theory used outside of academia. And then obviously <laughs> the influx of like, you know, think pieces following yeah. uh, George Floyd's murder. And it's very interesting. I was like, wow, it has reached the mouth of the like presidential candidates. Yeah. Prior right. to the aftermath of the George Floyd protests, mm -hmm. I had only ever heard of critical race theory when I was talking to actual philosophers. I had never heard it in the social sphere until this year. Well, so. it was it was in the church. It's been in the church for 
Oh wow! Right, right. Yeah. I, as yeah. like a layperson, hadn't. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, critical race theory is not strictly in the domain of philosophy. It's mm-hmm. uh, not strictly a philosophical tradition, um, but it comes out of legal theory, as I said. But it's practiced by sociologists, uh, people in English departments, philosophy departments, uh, anthropologists everywhere. If there is some way. Uh, you can bring in the legal system or analysis of the legal system. Um, what you're applying there is critical race theory mm-hmm. specifically, but you don't want to conflate it with many other traditions among uh, people talking about race that now has fallen under the umbrella of critical race yeah, theory. Yeah, so people now need. people would call any uh, quote-unquote progressive ideology or thought process regarding race, they would lump it all under critical race yeah. theory, which is... I mean, totally wrong. Yeah. So yeah, if you if you talk about any racial disparity, it is a mean critical race theory, mm-hmm. and that I, well, particularly evangelical spaces that I'm. It's like I was done. Okay. Um, let me record it from the other end. Yeah. Can you yeah, say yeah. that again, Josh? Oh, did I cut out? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Um, no, I was just saying that yeah, evangelicalism, um, anytime you bring up any type of racial disparity mm-hmm. or any type of like uh, discrimination, it is immediately put under the umbrella of critical race theory. And that's kind of the that's kind of the smoke word of like now we don't have to deal with this because that's not that's not biblical so we kick it out yeah um but it's all thrown under that kind of what joe was saying it's all thrown under that lump Mm -hmm. um speaking of biblical uh so just to make people think about if you are going to take a biblical approach biblical exegesis um and maybe in like uh at least in oriental churches or in uh, apostolic churches i know this is the case canon law always is revised um, I'm not sure if evangelicals are against canon laws and you know le- uh, legislation from powers above, uh, but it's a part of the Christian heritage to review mm-hmm. canon law to see if it abides by scripture and by theological interpretations as they're advancing and the situation within a given community uh, temporally, right, when the time comes through. Uh, so in the evangelical space, canon law formally would be anathema. It would be seen as something that's, you know, that evangelicals are against. However, uh, there is an emergent property of uh, this ideological canon law within evangelical spaces, whereas um, <clears throat> you'll see like you'll see it branded as orthodoxy versus heresy, uh, even though the evangelical orthodoxy is less than 500 years old. That mm-hmm. word is used to describe what is sort of in the Overton window of theologically acceptable positions, uh, whereas, you know, in this debate, people would say like, oh, you're you're theologically attempting to integrate critical race theory that is outside of the our acceptable uh, range of theological engagement. Okay. Yeah, because that would do a disservice to the history of Christianity. I don't know if evangelicals, do you consider from the apostolic age all the way to, uh, you know, is it Martin Luther? I don't want to misspeak. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it would be Dep- on paper... On paper, yes, that's all part mm-hmm. of the Christian tradition, but right. it is given almost a second-class status in terms of the quality of the uh, theology. Okay. So, so what they do is uh, 
it's a pick and choose type deal. So evangelicals will pick St. Augustine and they'll say, Augustine kind of sounds like Martin Luther and John Calvin. So he's good. Mm -hmm. Um, And then even with certain Aquinas. Yes, they'll take Aquinas because he was very systematic in his theological approach. Uh, And then they have to respect the church fathers because they're so close to Jesus and Paul in time. Mm-hmm. And because they had so much effect on the early church, but they don't, they don't dig deep. Like if they really dug deep, of course, they'd be really offended by a lot of the church fathers. So it's kind of a pick and choose type deal where it's like, yeah, like Joe was saying on paper. Yes. But really it's who sounds the most like Martin Luther and John Calvin. And then those are the guys that we follow the stream of. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, because I was going to make claims about there is a rich, uh, because when you Joel, when you uh, sent me the initial like questions, just so that I'd be prepped, I was like thinking, oh yeah, in Christianity, there's like you know liberation theology that uh, came out of Latin American Catholicism, yeah. uh, which obviously uh, then influences Black uh, liberation theology, but Black mm-hmm. theology also independently developed in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, coming out. Of, it is important to yeah. note, however, that uh, Latin American liberation theology was explicitly influenced by Marxism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. That's interesting, right? But then I don't know how much the anti-Catholic sentiment sits for my uh, argument to follow. Uh, you know, I, it's, it's you know, I think the I think what's funny is that when evangelicals react to that, they care more about being anti-Marxist than being anti-Catholic in this oh, context. Interesting, 100%. interesting, absolutely. Yeah. Marxism is seen as a greater threat ideologically. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, this comes out of a very rootedness of, and it's a very American. Uh, fear mm. of Marxism. Not saying I, I subscribe to Marxism or I uh, recommend it. Um, I am not a Marxist. Um, I have to read it because, you know, as part of my literature and what you have to know, yeah. you have to re- read. And there are many people that I read who have been influenced undoubtedly by Marxists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, you it, again, these are completely separate. And Tommy Curry, actually, uh, if you read this article, uh, Will the Real CRT Please Stand Up? Mm. That's a nice title. <laughs> uh, he explicitly says that he is frustrated with um, CRT being diluted in the sense because there are many Marxist circles in the U.S. who are primarily in continental uh, philosophical traditions. Continental philosophy, as I said, is primarily where critical theory happens in English departments, wherever it is, where people talk about race and then call themselves critical race theorists. And there may be white folks doing this stuff and diluting the work either to serve a white interest or uh, primarily just get disposing of the central axioms that defined um, this uh, field of inquiry or tradition, right? Mm -hmm. So it gets very frustrating in that sense, because at least you, you're, you cease to abide by uh, what the prescriptions of critical race theory is. I'm not saying it's rigid. It obviously modifies as it goes forward. But mm-hmm. Marxism is definitely not one of them. There are black thinkers who have influenced later critical race, uh, race theorists, um, like um, Robinson, C.L.R. James, um, who are black Marxists, right? And I guess uh, uh, Du Bois in certain lenses could also be interpreted as such. But you have to realize they were all just reading each other. And you have eventually you have to engage with all of these things. But doesn't mean that Marxist thought becomes central mm-hmm. or does, right. to your philosophical ideology or to your normative claims about this or that. 
Yeah. yeah. You made an interesting connection here between uh, critical race theory and liberation theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those who may not know, liberation theology, as we mentioned, stems from Latin America. It was in the context of Catholicism and it's somewhat downstream of Marxist thought. Um, the idea is that there that God has a preferential option for the poor. That's, that's kind of one of the common phrases that's espoused. And even that's even used by Catholics um, today. In fact, Joe Biden, who is Catholic, he, I think he used the phrase preferential option for the poor in stating how his Catholic faith impacts his policy. He's a um, damn lie, but yes, he did say that. Yeah. I mean, he did say that. You, you do have to even realize, I mean, there was so much cringe during the first uh, debate, but it was all because of the posturing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it was more cynical, I think, when it came out of Biden's mouth than mm-hmm. Trump, because uh, Trump's sincerity is amorphous to me. Yeah. But uh, when it comes to Biden, I was like, I know. This is all posturing just to get the votes. Um, exactly. And so that becomes very interesting, right? So what, What? The, I guess the major question is, uh, let's ground this a bit more. Critical race theory, as I've identified, is part of the legal thing. Uh, many people have been misusing it. And obviously, as it reaches the public, it gets consumed in so many ways. And intersectionality is another one of those concepts. Yeah. Kimberly Crenshaw, you mentioned Kimberly Crenshaw earlier. She's yeah. kind of the, the first... Uh, voice behind intersectionality, which mm-hmm. we would define as you can't, well, which I would define as you can't fully understand someone's oppression unless you understand the overlaps between the different um, ways they are second class citizens. So, for example, mm-hmm. a black woman, uh, you know, by virtue of being black and by being a woman, she is undergoing multiple forms of um i guess prejudice or oppression or however you want to call it at the same time and those uh exponentially complicate the degree of the magnitude of that uh, okay issue so i think that's the issue but how intersectionality has been consumed has uh played into what I would call oppression Olympics. And, mm-hmm. you know, that became another catch. Right. And that's, that's the, you know, from the right, that's one of the criticisms of intersectional theory is that they're saying like, oh, just because you're like a black, gay, trans, you know, trans woman, you, you're like competing. You know, we have to listen to you more because you are so oppressed in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and then the right would say that's, I mean, that's foolish just to say that the more, issues you have in your life, the greater of a platform we need to give you. That's the criticism that's coming from the ideological. Well, well let, let me jump in there because I think I, I think what happens is the right is the only one. Now, the right does, that's a good, healthy criticism. Mm-hmm. But they, they're the only ones that get said to have that criticism and that's not true. Correct. The left has the same criticism. Correct. Mm-hmm. So, like, everyone kind of yas-queening Kamala Harris literally makes me want to vomit. <laughs> and literally, she is a mass incarcerator. <laughs> exactly. No, she I, is good. No, I mean, but I was just gonna say she is like the very problem that critical race theory is diagnosing. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, and that's the problem, right? And this is all because of misinterpretation of intersectionality. Mm-hmm. So when Kimberly Crenshaw initially uh, introduced in, or coined the term intersectionality uh, in uh, 
1989. She intended it just to mean that gender, class, and sex intersect in ways that make give us an analysis of interesting forms of interesting, I'm just using the word interesting, I'm not going to pass a judgment on it, mm-hmm. uh, of oppression that are mm-hmm. happening. So over here, the way it was appropriated uh, and used for in black feminist circles is, uh, you can see it in uh, Black Feminist Thought by Patricia Hill Collins, where it's primarily that being the experience of black women can only be understood as co-constituted as being both black and women at the same time. And then later on, they added, you know, sexual orientation, whatever. Mm. Uh, and then you get the litanies uh, that come out of it because people are like, oh, wait, now I'm like, I don't want to I don't want to come off as offensive or like a non-inclusive. So I'm going to add this litany of identities to wokeify myself or like signal my wokeness. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that was not what they intended. This was specifically intended to show that black women's experiences just simply haven't been visible based on the forms of analyses we have been using. And it, and I just mean visible. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to bring an explicit normative claim about what should be done or what ought to be done, but mm-hmm. just saying that this is a mode of analysis so that you can see the experience of black women as black and women simultaneously in this thing. So, yeah. so would it be... Would it be fair to to would it be a better definition of intersectionality to say if you are a black gay woman, mm-hmm. it's harder for you to get to resources? No, and that's really just a diagnosis. I think Jonathan would say that's already you're already interpreting too much. Yeah, the thing is, they they, oh, they never prescribed a hierarchy. <laughs> and I think that was the thing, the word intersection, because we were like, oh, this must be worse uh, than, you know, like if you're a trans black uh, immigrant woman. Uh, do you want to add something else to it? Like just no, give me, go I mean, I I think we get because, the picture. Because the point is, it's not that that is just not how somet- sometimes it pans out. Yes, for many people, that might be the case. These various modes of uh identities may converge and create a specific form of experience because now they have to navigate themselves as different Mm -hmm. in majority of the spaces that they exist in that's given Mm -hmm. right but primarily what's going to define your life quality is going to be your financial resources and (laughs) your social prestige that you have and that is the most salient factor to be honest um and the intersectionality, again, is just an analysis to see that this is the experience of black women, but it does not mean if you enumerate the oppressions, it becomes kind of like this additive calculus. I've seen a website, I, I forgot what it was called, but where like you could go in and like to put in like your melanin level or, you know, <laughs> if you yeah. were able-bodied or not, your mental state, <laughs> all of these things. And then it'll show you where in the hierarchy you are in terms of oppression. Oh my gosh. And I was like, what is this is this like a calculus for reparations or something because realistically that is not how these logics works the logics work um in ways that certain target groups are set either for extermination or disenfranchisement because they are seen as unnecessary for their social system or unwanted yeah Uh, no there's a so there's a biblical example of this there's a big four in the old testament Mm -hmm. uh the immigrant the poor, the widow, um, and the orphan. Mm -hmm. And I've heard some intersectionality 
intersectionalists, I guess is the best way to the term to find them, uh, or people who say they ascribe to intersectionality. Or is, say, what we're really talking about is wokeness politics, which is that's it. Woke, they yes. would say that they're inspired by intersection intersectionality, but they don't represent the academy of intersectionality. Exactly. So woke. Yes, that's a better way to describe it. So so woke establishment Democrats um, who would say, oh look. And there's times in the Bible where people get the trifecta of it. And the point that God is making when he's telling Israel to look out for these people is that they're poor. Mm -hmm. All of them are poor. That's exactly it. They don't have the means or access to economic resources. Exactly. He's not he's not saying, you know, oh, Hagar, she's a she's a Gentile, a woman and a slave. What a terrible. No, she's poor. Exactly. (laughs) And And that's why you need to look out for her, because. Because she's poor. And mm-hmm. yes, those other, like you said, those other things now, it, it does add a difficulty, right? We can't ignore that because it's like now in every room, you're different and that's hard. Yeah. And maybe this is the factor that's exiling you from resources. But for instance, uh, a couple of examples is, you know, there, there have been um, trans people who have, you know, endorsed Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, w- during the primaries and they were saying he's for the trans community now if you look at statistically um, trans people are uh, n- a lot of them aren't the fabulous like you know uh, uh, um, passable is the mm-hmm. word uh, if, if that's offensive to anyone listening please no no I mean it's literally me passing yeah Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there, but there are, you know, and, and have the money for all the surgeries and everything. Well, most people who are trans are poor and don't have the resources to have all of, all of those surgeries and all of that transition and, and all those things. And so there was critiques of these people supporting Joe Biden that they were like, what is he actually going to do about our like financial well being? Mm-hmm. Not just signal with taking some pictures with, some wealthy trans women who have, have already, you know, jumped over the mountain. So that's one, you know, example of just the phoniness of it. But then, like, you know, I, I was so tempted to post on Twitter, this on Twitter today, and I'm still going to do it. I just, I've just been waiting to not be so upset so that it yeah. doesn't come, off, come across as angry. But, like, all these people are like, you know, yeah, it's Kamala Harris. I'm like, what if Candace Owens was the vice president? Would that be just as glorious? She's a black woman. I mean, she's African-American yeah. too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. She's and Kamala Harris she's, is not a descendant. She's not African-American. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So she's got the, she's got the intersectionality. It's the first woman. Hey, a, a young black girl could look at her and be inspired. Oh, I could do mm-hmm. it. She's also going to detrimentally destroy the lives of black people. Is that cool? Are we good with that? Exactly. You know what I'm saying? It's like, we're not. <laughs> you know? yeah. and so, so, I mean, so, this, yeah. the, the problem with this misinterpretation and uh, injustice done to black feminist scholars uh, through the interpretation of intersectionality, and I, I have high suspicions that um, in the acad- in the academy, people are so afraid of like, you know, gatekeeping or something like that. They won't call out BS when they see it, when there is inconsistencies, when there is, um, you know, over extrapolation. These are flaws in reason. And I'm not saying reason is a singularly Western thing. Rationality has been something humans have achieved independent of each other as communities and developed, uh, you know, thriving philosophical systems outside of the European context. So people can't just make that critique, or then you're like, you know, 
centering mm-hmm. this in European modes of thinking. I was like, that's not what I'm doing. You have to have mm-hmm. conceptual consistency. And as a result, you end up here with this situation where um, there's a misapplication and it frustrates both the left and the right um, of the social spectrum. And the right, unfortunately, many of the critiques that we have noted um, that um, people who may be critical of uh, Marxists or intersectionality or things, it's all coming out because they see the backwash <laughs> of a mm-hmm. lot of this in the sense uh, they, they're not attending to the primary literature because reading is frustrating, I get is exhausting. Um, mm. But when you read the text for what it is, then you'll understand what the person actually intended versus what somebody on Twitter uh, or with somebody, you know, who is angry at you at like at church or wherever it may be, yelled at your face or at Thanksgiving, try to one up you, you know, whatever it mm. may be, these situations are, it's undignifying, right? So of mm. course you're going to have a negative conception and then that becomes labeled as antithetical to your religion as well, because that's the major argument. And um, many Christian groups have used that in ways to mobilize within the U.S., um, especially with the confluence of Christian interest groups with politics. And strangely enough, because this was not where Christianity was 100 years ago in this country, uh, strangely enough, working towards uh disenfranchising the poor, even though you may have charitable organizations or everything systematically, that's just not how it pans out because your interests lie in making money. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. No. Well, so, yeah. you're talking to the right guy. Josh has, yeah. you know, years worth of thoughts on that. So exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think charity is, uh, is, uh, is, is such a front for, for greed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, the example I give to, I used to give to my college leaders was like, it's like constantly serving at a homeless shelter and never stopping the law that's making people homeless. Exactly. That there's intentionally laws that are making people homeless or that are forcing people into homelessness. There's multiple laws that force them into homelessness or intentionally laws that don't do anything about homelessness. Like don't provide, provide uh, livable housing, you know, all these different things. And it's like, but I'm going to serve at the homeless shelter because I care about homeless people. Well, no, you don't because you could actually fight for policies that never get them in that in that mm-hmm. circumstance, um, and in many ways, the homeless shelter is just a uh, it's a it's an optic, it's a good pick. Yeah. Um, and then the same thing with charities. I mean, people literally like write that stuff off on their taxes and stuff, and so it's like you get uh, financial gain. I, I had a couple. I had a couple thoughts. Um, one's with me. The other one may come back. Um, I, well, I'm I'm gonna throw out a hypothesis, or and I and I want you to tell me what you think. I think the only reason that critical race theory is rejected in evangelical spaces is because people are racist. I, I especially when you when you you know the point that you made, which was the other thought I had. You're like, well, people are getting the backwash of it. It's like. As a minister of the gospel, as someone who's literally seminary trained and academic, mm-hmm. your responsibility is to read primary sources. Yeah. As a political pundit or thinker or analysis from maybe the Republican side, your responsibility is to read original sources. Your responsibility is to do homework and you could give a great corrective to these ideas and maybe even still critique these ideas at their original sources. So... I'm of the persuasion 
that the biggest reason that people are not reading these original sources and are not doing their homework and are simply just being responding to, you know, the the uh, the most um, watered down and annoying voices of the idea of critical of, of critical theories, but particularly of critical race theory and uh, even intersectionality as well, is because they they because they're legitimately racist and don't want to confront the societal diagnostic that critical race theory is. And what would you say? Is that too harsh? Is that no? I mean, I I didn't want to say it because I don't know like. Majority of the listeners, I suppose, are white, but it's it's just a reality. Um, the only reason you would dismiss that altogether is because what it demands, in implicitly, it doesn't explicitly do this, right? Because it's just a diagnostic, but obviously the way it is taken off with how people consume it, the demand is um, that you have to fix the situation. What does the fixing the situation mean? Realigning the status quo. And are you ready to do it? No, you like your place in suburbia. You like the ability to know that you can like not have to lock your front door because you don't live in quote unquote that neighborhood. Um, and there's many, many, many comforts that come out of this and the invisibility that's granted by uh, you know segregation um, in terms of uh, residential segregation. That's a result of the economic disenfranchisement that came out that you never have to ever deal with this. So the only time you have to see a black person or the only time you have to see a non-white person generally is um, if they are working for you, the one who comes to cut your grass, make do your maintenance, um, serve you food uh, out of the mm-hmm. drive-through. Those are the only instances. Do you care where they have to return to? No, you mm-hmm. don't. And then speaking about the altruism, um, yeah, that's... That's part of, I, I don't know what it is about the West, um, following, it was following the 1500s, 1600s about, um, not all the way back in the 1400s, but there was this need to spread the gospel, uh, which is fine. But in addition to that, um, to save people and create situations, because if you run out of a market of people to save, you need a captive audience in a way, right? So you can think about, uh, especially in the third world, um, there are situations where they're set up so that you can go and save somebody maybe from like uh, the sexual slavery or something. And the reality is they may have willingly entered uh, sex work or something like that, or they may not have actually been trafficked, but you have this idea because of uh, what you've been told here that they are in these dire situations. So you go there, you save them, and then what do you do? You figure out a way to employ them in a dignified way because, uh, and what they make jewelry or like Hallmark cards, whatever it may be, you know, uh, shape cups or something. I don't know. I'm just like thinking of like the various <laughs> ways this would be done. And it's sold to you through your church ministry. And then you feel like, oh, wow, these kids in Africa, like so sweet of them to do this. And actually, their communities are still economically deprived. They're stuck in a situation where they're almost like borderline enslaved to you through these contracts, through these situations, and nothing has been resolved in their communities. You went and interfered, and instead a market was created so other people who orchestrated this whole scenario of tragedy for you can benefit from it. And in the U.S., grand example, yes, the homeless shelters, right? You need to, so that you can create homeless shelters so that on Christmas or on Thanksgiving you have a photo op Uh, So you do need poor people to make you feel grateful for what God has truly blessed you for. 
<laughs> right? Um, well, it's like, is the Christian narrative of charity ever going to work? Uh, and which is strange because you'd think like Christ would, has already subscribed in the kingdom of heaven. You would, these differences would be eradicated. But he wasn't just saying, wait till the kingdom of heaven for you to like have this. That's given us like a sedative to the poor so that they can live through the pain of their life until death. But no, he was upsetting the status quo. There's a reason he was crucified. What he was prescribing mm -hmm. there was going to overthrow Rome. And uh, the hierarchies that were set up by the Pharisees, and through which the Pharisees were ben benefiting as well. So where is this coming from, where you are unable to do justice because something says critical race theory? Because it points out the specific feature, which is race, on which your economic wealth has been built in this country and through which right. your racial group benefits and continues right. to benefit and will continue to benefit for the next few hundred years. Yeah. Unless something changes. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know who's more damaging to the narrative. Mm -hmm. So I so literally um I've had to sit through some pretty just unbearable race conversations uh just you know whether it's work or group of friends or uh church you know whatever it, to different settings um and i normally don't know who i'm more frustrated with the blatant racist who's trying to reject these categories or the woke person who is convoluting the categories. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's so many times where I hear something and I'm just like, oh, if you would just shut up, like I promise this conversation would go smoother if you, <laughs> because it's like, there's such a beautiful substantive conversation to be had of this idea that literally our country has been built from its foundation on a white supremacist ideology where white people are inherently through the law um, benefiting from the society more than other people groups in the society, even when those other, even when there are exceptions of those other people groups benefiting. And it's like, that is such a substantive imperialistic reality mm -hmm. that doesn't need to be convoluted with you know, you know, whatever woke topic it is today of like, um, oh my gosh, Trump tweeted something. I don't care. What I care about is the policy that Trump had where he deregulated um, uh, different plants and, and now there's toxins in the air and toxins in our water. Mm -hmm. And that's going to specifically affect black and brown and poor communities that's what i care about i don't give a damn about his tweets like yeah. you know what i mean yeah or or white guilt the the whole idea oh, of like oh yeah you know we you know we're all educated here on the left and we 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 read some article about critical race theory and intersectionality and we're totally gonna say that unless you're one of these oppressed people groups if you're just like a white straight male you're like the worst person on the planet and <laughs> you're never gonna be able to repent of your inherent substance of your essence that is the oppressor within you yeah. you know it's like that that narrative doesn't help anybody that narrative does not bring repentance because it just agitates people and right. that narrative uh it, it's not fact-based it's just it's just based on these broad categories that are ideological mm -hmm. that are right. divorced from their uh non-normative you know philosophical roots and because yeah, yeah it's not, it doesn't quick. help anybody because real quick, I know white, I said this uh, when we were talking to Marcus yesterday, 
I know white anti-racists that are doing a much better job of dismantling the systems that critical race theory is is diagnosing than black people who have like sold into white supremacy and are like going with a hook, line and sinker, preaching it as a pastor, um, creating laws as a politician, uh, uh, having those uh, concepts about the hood as some kind of CEO. Like it's like, and so it's like, so, you know, Robin D'Angelo through wife agility is going to try to tell me that this white person has more, guilt in the American context uh, just because they're white, even though they are legitimately using anti-racist concepts to challenge the status quo, Mm -hmm. then this black person who's working against Mm -hmm. black people in the way that they are uh, approaching uh, their existence within America. And it's like, that's ridiculous. And so it's like, you lose all the substance of the conversation and all of the healthy solutions when you just dumb it down to white people bad, black people good, instead of talking about policies, uh, who's benefiting the most from the policies, who's still not benefiting, even though they should, even though in some ways they're benefiting, um, like poor white people who are just, they just get taken along for the ride, you know, like, especially yeah, cares about them, except party, Trump, right? apparently, allegedly. Exactly. <laughs> And I mean, that is the issue, right? So when you use an intersectional lens inappropriately, you come up with the conclusion, oh, white straight man, uh, says white straight man is, you know, the demon of all demons, you know, the source from which all evil comes. It's like, Mm -hmm. uh, no, it's not the case. Because if you look also at the history of white feminism specifically, it was rooted in racism. The whole, like, think about the suffragists, Mm -hmm. um, Susan B. Anthony, um, at the beginning, like, in... 18, uh, guess, yeah, in the 1870s after the Emancipation Proclamation, what was going to happen was that because African Americans were going to be recognized as citizens, black males were going to get the right to vote. Um, because at that time, women didn't have the right to vote, right? Um, so they made the argument that no, that isn't, shouldn't be the case because it upsets the racial order. Mm-hmm. And they were whipped up the narrative of the black male rapist which follows through and then you get you know lynching you get jim crow all of this and then suddenly mass incarceration of black males what is happening here it's because of the fear if they are equal as men to white men they have access to my bodies and if they have access to my bodies the children are going to be black think about one drop rule right so the logic follows that means the death of the white race Preoccupation, but what is the central argument? Women's freedom, women's liberty, women's empowerment. Women's empowerment does not mean the liberation of your entire group at the same time. And so, following that lineage, any kind of like race based feminisms that come out of that tradition is going to be mired with that ideology and what it does to comp- uh, contradict racial advancement in the name of gendered advancement. Um, there are women's empowerment, uh, not ideologies, but uh, women's empowerment theories, um, such mm-hmm. as Africana womanism, mm-hmm. which would prioritize something like race is the first thing. And we cannot, if we don't move it forward as a race, we fail to do so. And alongside that, uh, uh, secondarily would be women's empowerment as part of the race advancing uh, instead of 
prioritizing gender over race or gender alongside race as though they are equal things. Because to be honest, when people see you first from a mile away, they don't see your gender, they don't see your sexual orientation. Uh, usually they see your race if you are not white. Um, mm -hmm. That's like the right. first thing. And that is going to be, and as a community, you're marginalized. People who is living in the hood, right? It's not going to be, oh, it's just, you know, black women or trans women or something like that. It's going to be primarily an entire racial group because they are systematically marginalized. Um, but no, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to, I was going to ask, I was going to state something that I think that I've observed as what I think may be problematic, but then, uh, but ask you how problematic you think it is. So one of the emergences that have happened in the, it's, it's always existed, right? So the, so the old Dixiecrats mm -hmm. were, they were populous, but they only focused on one underclass and that was poor white people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so it's been here in America, but uh, there's kind of been a reemergence of it, uh, within the Republican party where the Republican party is no longer simply a corporatist party, but there's starting to be rumblings within it of like, Hey, a lot of us don't have healthcare. A lot of us don't, um, a lot of us aren't getting good wages. A lot of our jobs are being tipped overseas. A lot of us are having to go fight wars and die that, you know, are stupid wars or whatever. And Trump was able to get elected off of that message where he was speaking to the underclass in the Republican Party um, and using populist rhetoric. Now, of course, he governed like a corporatist. But I'm beginning to see like a lot of, you know, like Tucker Carlson, um, who's speaking very populist rhetoric, uh, uh, Sagar and Jetty, a guy that I listened to on The Rising, who's speaking a lot of populist rhetoric. And, you know, it's funny because at first when I hear some of it, I'm like, ah, team that. Yes. Like, I kind of like some of that. But I think what's what I'm fearing is dangerous about it is it is so only exclusively class centered that it doesn't address any um like idea of race as important that that they've and so so they reject any idea of identity politics any idea of a particular racial discrimination it's all class all class all class and because of this like neutered language, it seems to only speak to, at least in their uh, constituencies, white underclass. Mm -hmm. And it kind of trends towards a, a uh, kind of Hitler like fascism, um, you know, and so I, I'm wondering. Well, like, uh, yeah. And, and I think your analogy is great because what was what was Hitler's what was the Nazi party's rhetoric is like oh the jews are the source of the problem in society like the jews mm -hmm. are taking the jobs the jews are doing this kind yeah. of scenes and i don't want to make this comparison between right-wing extremism and nazism it's not mm -hmm. the same however the same. There's, there, there's like the same line of thinking it's like oh the yeah. immigrants are stealing your jobs it's it's yes. there's parallels there mm -hmm. um and and what I, I was thinking about this the other day and I was thinking, you know, we use the language of systemic racism to talk about the inequity that results from <clears throat> um, black and brown people in these marginalized communities. What if we use systemic issues as a way of framing the problems that rural white 
poor Americans face. Yes, to make it more equalized. Because yeah. I r- really, I mean, I'm sure you could use that same language of quote unquote systemic oppression to describe the phenomenon of what happens when these rural communities that are far away from cities, the, the, the argument is that they don't have a voice. That's why they, that's why they like, um, the fact that, uh, these like big wide open states can have more electoral votes is like, Oh, we need to give the little guy a voice. Mm-hmm, the yeah. person who lives out in the middle of nowhere, their voice needs to be heard. Um, and so I'm wondering if the language of systemic oppression. I'm going to I'm going to convolute that a little bit more before mm-hmm. you respond, because I think. So I, I love the idea of universalizing policies. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of saying Medicare for all instead of a particular reparation. I love the idea because it's harder to it's harder for uh, particularly right wing politicians to to strike it down. If it's affirmative action, then it's like, oh, that's discrimination and racist, we strike it down. If it's social security, everyone's benefiting from it, you can't strike it down. Everyone's enjoying it, everyone's benefiting from it. Um, so I like universal policies. I fear universal language a little bit because I think it, it if it's too universal, it's, someone's gonna, dog whistle to a particular person within it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think some of these right-wing populists are doing is they're saying poor working class, but just like the Dixiecrats before them, they're only talking to one group. And, and like even my boy, my boy FDR, his new deal only benefited certain groups, one group in particular. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, so, so that was, there was a couple of things there. One, even though I like some of the populist rhetoric that I'm hearing from the Republican party, and I think I can take advantage of it and be persuasive with them. I'm afraid of it because I think some of it is hinting towards, um, fascism. And two, I kind of like that solution, Joel, but I'm fearful that if I over universalize language, uh, it's easy for someone to come along and take that and just dog whistle it to a particular group and I end up in the same situation. So thoughts on all of that. Yeah. Um, so this whole situation, again, I guess something we haven't touched on is um, predicated on the fact that we're still working within a white country, white America, that America is still, um, its various populations is still living alongside each other. Uh, it would really upset a lot of people if I advocated for like separatist arguments, mm-hmm. right? It's just, um, it makes it very difficult pragmatically because anytime you try to uh, generate some kind of separatist thing, uh, there is going to be a lot of pushback and you will face a lot of economic consequences for that. That is an explicit form of punishing anybody who tried to separate uh, prematurely. Um, so this is interesting because now if we think about this, if you do posit something like a universal language and you pointed out uh, the New Deal, um, and you can also think about, you know, the universal language which granted, uh, I guess, uh, black men the right to vote in the 1870s, right? Uh, sorry, 1870s, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The result of that was 
yes, theoretically they did. You would, theoretically, all of this is possible, but mm-hmm. the avenues to make it realizable is not going to be given to you. You're going to put mm-hmm. people into prison. You're going to put them into chain gangs. Uh, you're going to uh, find ways to make sure they're never able to reach the dispensary of that resource. Mm-hmm. Or you will make sure it never reaches a community because you will come up with the, the main legislation that is supposed to serve some egalitarian purpose or some just purpose will still be preserved, but the um, the nodes that work underneath it or the wheels that turn around it will be turned to ensure that black people, uh, specifically poor black people, those who have integrated into uh, like majority white society economically are generally left out of this other than like having their skin um, and phenotype as like, you know, the mark of Cain that follows them along. But for most people, uh, a lar- a close to 70 to 80% of African Americans in the US, that is not going to be the case because the government will find some way. So think about all the times and critical race theory identifies as any time there has been a political advance, um, immediately there has been a reversal. So think about reconstruction failing. Think about uh, that follows emancipation, right? Um, because think about the, the Tulsa attacks, mm-hmm. right? What is happening there? The black community is thriving. It's almost going to be at the point economically uh, as the white community, but that is not tolerable because it upsets the status quo of the United States, which is based on race. Same thing following the 60s. You know, you get these civil rights acts followed through. Then what happens in the Reagan era, the war on drugs, right? And now- Oh, real quick, real quick interjects in there. And- and not only the war on drugs, but prior to that, let's make a false narrative. So, you know, uh, LBJ has the the war on poverty, mm-hmm. which any Republican listening, I want you to hear this. It was effective. It was working. It was working. Like the lives of black people were actually uh, substantively benefiting from the war on poverty. And now what we do is we rewrite that narrative as it created a dependency culture. It was actually bad. Mm-hmm. And it's like no, you know what I mean. And so it's like, so not only do we, not only do we like the Reagan era, not only do we destroy the 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 gains of the '60s with mass incarceration and you know small government and all that, but it's like now we also rewrite the narratives. We th- we say things that were actually benefiting that community. Yeah, uh, we write it as no, it was actually destroying that community. Exactly. Because the thing that was meant to benefit, eventually they, there's enough legislation that goes around it that'll come to destroy it indirectly, even under the progressive guise. So that's beautiful how uh, elegantly that works. And then you see that uh, recently and following, I think, uh, Michelle Alexander's uh, book, The New Jim Crow, and also prior to that, I think people were well aware of the situation. Um, and, you know, Kamala Harris and, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, everybody is doing their, you know, apologies now. You know, it's like, oh, my bad. I don't know. You know, it's being progressive. I was like, no, you knew. You knew exactly what you were doing. You are at the forefront of it. You just have mm-hmm. to play the front of being progressive. Um, mm-hmm. And so what happens is, and this is where I get very frustrated with current discussion around police brutality and police reform. I was like, mm-hmm. that does not solve anything. It never does, never will, never did. This whole fixation on frontline uh, surface level issues, you know, oh, these angry police officers like killing black people, what a visceral sight. I don't want to see it. 
this is not something that I should be seeing. That is the priority because you cannot bear to see that this may be a reality for a lot of people in this country that you never see other than when you, they are working for you, if at all, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that then you fix that as a priority instead of working towards mass incarceration. How many millions of Americans are in the carceral system? Leave that aside. Now they're being, you know, the carceral population has been decreasing, but they are marked with the stigma of social death in the sense they are not able to participate in social life, mm -hmm. cannot find jobs or cannot be hired, have to, you know, they have the felony record that follows them for the pettiest crimes that were over-exaggerated, uh, right? Where is the solutions for that? That is what's going to affect the daily life of like a good chunk of black people who have been under uh, carceral purview in the United States. But you never see those people. And for elite blacks, they know those people may not even be in their circles. They may not be family members because you've been maintaining your family wealth for multiple generations as doctors, right. lawyers, whatever it may be. You know, with your Jack and Jill societies, you know, and historically, you know, think about like brown paper bag societies. All of these are ways to separate from the lived reality of those, the underclass, which is a large part of the, a large chunk of the African American community that you just don't have to account for. And that's where the issue lies. With universal language, there will be a return to marginalize and actively dislocate those who are unwanted. Well then then I then that leads to my second question. Mm -hmm. The person that I want to run in 2024 is Nina Nina Turner. Mm -hmm. Um that's my girl. She's phenomenal. A very strong black woman, right? Um, I think was if the DNC didn't annihilate Bernie Sanders twice, mm -hmm. um, I think he is the most effective tool possible because of his universal language. But I think the benefit that Nina Turner has is that she's got a lot of that anti-racism in her. And it's like legit. It's not just woke stuff. It's like she's legitimately got like anti-racism thought mixed with critique of capitalism and classes and classism but so far what has been the strategy for black politicians is the more you lean into race issues the less electable you are mm -hmm. so president obama was basically a republican which is probably some of his actual ideology but he basically ran as a you know moderate right-leaning Republican, or as Cornell West phrased them, a Republican in blackface, Kamala's going to do the same thing. They mm -hmm. asked her in a 60 Minutes interview about Medicare for All, and she did that stupid, awkward laugh. And I'm like, I almost, I was, I was like, you idiot. People are in the midst of a pandemic. Why would you laugh at Medicare for All? Um, is it possible to not universe? Like, is it possible for someone to come into power can they speak to the masses mm -hmm. with a mixture of a universal, like I want to fix everyone's substantive living, but we also have to recognize that I got to make sure there's no loopholes in this and so we have to deal with anti-racism. Is it possible for someone to, to win a, an election in a democracy that is marred by white supremacy with a combination of dealing with classism and doing anti-racism. Is that possible? Yeah. Um, okay, so we brought this up earlier, right? Where we were talking about uh, primarily poor whites in the US, rural mm -hmm. poor whites are the large chunk of it. Um, white supremacy does not benefit them. 
It never was meant to. Uh, poor whites were actually a separate caste in itself, along with uh, like uh, African Americans. Historically, this was just a group of people. People didn't know what to do. You just hire them right. occasionally for labor or something, but they live in or like, for slave patrols. This was slave patrols or something like that. So that's the thing: the slave patrols and successively, uh, um, not eugenics, but ethnology, which is the study, you know, quote unquote, scientific study of races or and phrenology. Phrenology. All of these were uh, phrenology was used within ethnology to. Um, say that you know there's these biological differences, and that's why uh, black uh, black uh, people from Africa are apt to be slaves, right? All of these arguments were predicated on justifying that even no matter how poor you are, you're at least white, and right. they took off with it. Um, in terms of like Irish labor in the north, when there was uh, after emancipation, they were against emancipation because they were afraid African Americans would come in and displace their employment because African Americans would be willing to work for lower labor. I'm sorry, lower wages uh, up north. So they were invested in seeing themselves as white, even though nobody at that time saw them the Irish as white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Irish were second class for exactly. Sure. Just watch gangs in New York. Mm-hmm. Exactly, right. and. Um, but you're invested in this, and there are many Americans right now who see themselves as genuinely white. When, to be honest, you're not. You're not in this. In the United States, this whole system was never meant to benefit you. So pulling yourself up on the bootstraps is not going to work. So the question is, if you can get those that population, if you can get that population to organize, to read critical literature, and not just dismiss it as either anti-Christian or uh, you know communist, whatever it may be. Read critical literature that is meant to benefit them from a viewpoint where they're coming from. Um, you can definitely organize mm-hmm. a large part of this country to vote both on a universal language that helps both communities as well as anti-racist work because there are exclusive ways in which um, these systems are out to mar, marginalize and even destroy uh, many black people. So... That also needs to be addressed, but you know, because that is what is it, a smoke word? Is that what you smoke screen? Smoke screen or something like that. But you know, it's a trigger for people. It's like um, they won't accept it. And so it's very difficult to bring that forward until you change the ideology. And that's been around yeah. for like 140, 50 years, um, yeah. more than 170 years. How are you going to uproot that? Mm-hmm. Right? The there's, been, there's been so much brainwashing. I mean, you look at you get you got cops out here who don't realize that the elites don't care about them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that, that you are the, the new slave patrollers. You get paid nothing. Exactly. <laughs> you, you, you know, you, you're, you put your life on the line, you get paid nothing. And, and but, but the, uh, but the president says how much, you know, the former president, well, still president um, says how much he cares about you and how much he uh, thinks your job is so important, but your wages are awful. Your, you know your salary is awful um and and you just get and you're just a you're just an instrument to continue to keep the black masses down and so it's hard because it's like it, it's like it's like how do you how do you get up and give a pro cop pro poor white message while using race language and getting them to understand that it's you know that it that that this language isn't a, it's not anti them it's it's actually for them um it's actually going to benefit them tremendously um you know it, because there's been so much brainwashing there's been yeah. so much help like elites have done a number on us and it's brilliant mm-hmm. 
I mean, we fight all the time. You got poor cops and poor black people fighting each other. Yeah. Instead it, of coming together I and mean, fighting the elites. It's 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 brilliant. Yeah. I mean, that's part and of so it. It's going to take a brilliant um it's going to take a brilliant politician to pull it off. Exactly. I mean, it's not I I don't think it's going to be the politician because it's a 150-year right. heritage, 150-year logic that's at play, right? Um, the mm-hmm. pieces move around. New people are incorporated into the underclass and the oppressor, mm-hmm. uh, underclass that is used as the oppressor. Um, and that'll just be navigated in now because the logic is working wow. elegantly. Um, what needs to change is the mode through which people get um, their communication. And yeah. I think the internet has a large part to play. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have social media echo chambers. Mm-hmm. You have every, everybody just wants, nobody reads all. You know, much less books. I mean, we're talking about reading books. Nobody even reads articles anymore. People just read headlines. They read memes. If it if it doesn't right. fit in a tweet, then it's too much yeah. for me to read. You know, um, and if people on Twitter are woke, then I'm gonna go to Parlor and I'm gonna form my own you know right leaning community yeah. of you know short messages. And it, no one's really engaging with ideas that are different from them. Nobody's really taking the time to digest long form literature i mean what, what do you think is the solution to that if, if this is oh. the vast vast majority of people who from a, i mean just looking at it from a literacy standpoint it's like yeah they can read but they are not willing to take the patient mm-hmm. time to engage with deep ideas that may challenge their norms yeah. so real, real quick real ahead. quick because I, I, I think there's there's one solution that is i mean it's going to take a, it's going to take a complete revival but pastors actually have people's ears for 40 minutes mm-hmm. and that's we still haven't gotten down to like the 20 minute sermons on most pastors some pastors do 20 even the churches where i see them do 20 they'll do two like one guy will do 20 and another guy will do 20 you know or a gal will do 20 um pastors have the ear of the masses poor rich everything in between for 40 minutes it's one of the only times that they open a book and listen to a lecture for so many of them mm-hmm. if there could be a revival amongst pastors to begin to speak that like rainbow coalition populist anti-racism language a grassroots movement like that could really mess some stuff up it could now the question is will the pastors do it I can see black pastors doing it. I don't know. I do not see white pastors doing it. I'm sorry. I just don't. I don't know what it would take um, to get that done. But yeah, there are these captive moments where people do listen to a voice of authority, right? Um, whether it be the meme that your aunt shared as the voice of authority or the pastor that's preaching to you on Sunday or your youth leader, whatever it may be. Um, how do you get these people in leadership? That's the major thing that has been. Uh, a downfall over a lot of activism. And I think that's a strategic thing because it prevents, you know, look at the history of like um, challenging unionization or challenging organization, grassroots organization. There will be some way to disrupt it. The fear is if there is strong leadership, they have influence because people mostly are mobilized through rhetoric. Mm -hmm. So as you said, if these leaders who have a captive audience take the charge because they finally align their moral compass and see the urgency of um, disrupting the status quo that is destroying the lives of many, regardless of race, gender, sexuality, whatever it may be. Um, 
you can get a change to happen, right? And historically, that is where it's happened. It's always uh, been like religious leaders uh, that have done that and taken that movement. You think of Gandhi, you think of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. They're mobilizing based on that uh, a religious standard because people are still rooted in spirituality and they feel like they're participating in a divine divine providence or a divine uh, you know, design in some capacity when they are changing the world. And th- there is that good intent. You do have to realize that uh, police officers are altruistic. Um, they just, because of their social media feeds and the echo chambers they're in, they've come to see uh, this like, bad man logic, right? We have to get rid of the evil man, the bad man, anybody who like uh, does a crime is inv- by definition evil and can paint an entire community as such. Uh, so it's a very difficult task to do. There's two solutions to this. First one is a separatist one, and which would be you create your own separate nation state and function economically independent of that. Uh, that's obviously very difficult and iffy. You don't have the resources, it ain't going to happen. Or if there's an interest convergence, that's the only time it would happen, right? Uh, there are many black nationalists speaking about that, and historically that has been how it's happened. But you need a geographic concentration for that kind of division and separation to happen. In the early 1900s, there was ample discussion about that uh, by creating like New Africa in the southern United States. That's not I don't know if that's a viable option. Maybe if the African-American community mobilizes in some capacity and gets the support of the international community, that might be possible. But any chance of doing that has been disrupted historically in the United States. The second solution is if you are going to stay within the United States to change the pedagogy. So education, you have to start with children. It's not indoctrination. I know parallels indoctrination. You have to start with children, not just raising your children to be anti-racist. That's mm-hmm. not going to do it. You know, it's like how do I raise my children to? The- no, they are going to absorb racism by the community they go to. When they hear to go to the playground, they're going to learn what the n-word is. When they are, <laughs> um, you know, fighting around uh, with their friends, they're going to hear the stereotypes. Everything. Uh, Sylvia Winter noted that the first thing the migrant learns when they come to the United States is the N-word because it places them in the social hierarchy of where to go. Likewise, children are going to absorb everything around them. Your duty to raise a child that can civilly participate and see the dignity of others is to ground them in belief systems, whether it be theological or philosophical, whatever it may be. That dignifies the humanity of others. There are ample resources being developed for that, but systematically it hasn't been distributed as a possibility that from the beginning to end, during your developmental age, you have the ability to critically reason, to challenge, while simultaneously recognize the importance of spirituality to guide you forward. Um, those are things that are not at odds. Many people think like simply because you end up... Uh, critically reasoning you're going to end up on an atheist trend and like abandon god altogether it's like that's not necessarily the case right um that i think is a solution the children um unfortunately children are left as they go you let them consume whatever the internet throws at them uh youtube algorithms are let loose um if you can find a solution to that i think it'll primarily come through children if you're going to create a new generation yeah that's powerful yeah, well, thanks so much, Joe. This really appreciated mm-hmm. coming on the podcast and sharing so much insight. I feel like this conversation was amazing. Uh, I mean, we, yeah. we went long, but it, we covered so much ground and we really 
uh, looked at so many different angles and really honestly tied together this whole series in, in so many ways tonight. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> just to do a quick summary, you know, we're, we're talking about critical race theory. That's kind of what started this conversation. And the important thing to take away is that it is just observations of, you know, looking at what are l- taking race as a real social concept, right? Like, even if it does not have grounding in biology at a social level, it does have real ramifications and taking a look at that and seeing, okay, what, in what ways is, um, you know, some would say like, oh, there are no racist laws. Like, well, that may be true now in a, you know, on paper, um, however, can we critically look at policies that are impacting people and policies that are impacting, uh, marginalized communities and saying okay is there a connection between race and this specific type of marginalization that's really what critical race theory is is that Mm -hmm. that a good summary you know and and when we when we attach extra stuff when we attach like uh wokeness politics when we attach um cultural marxism when we attach this this idea that like oh like we need to invert this power dynamic in order to equalize it um I think that's when we're we're misrepresenting the idea of critical race theory uh, in the same way as the people misrepresent inter- intersectionality. You know, <clears throat> it, it's a shame that f- these ideas that originated in the academy, when they hit the masses, when they hit downstream, they are appropriated and used for agendas, and they're misconstrued, and they become nebulous, and and the definitions of these words ch- and these terminology changes over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important for us to really get to the roots of you know what are we talking about when we say these words, or are we using these words as triggers to either champion my agenda or combat your agenda? Mm-hmm. And, and a quick and a quick a quick add on there is, don't listen to this stuff from rich people. Exactly. That's a huge thing. It's like, I love LeBron James and I want him to speak out on racial issues, but always listen to him realizing that he is an elite. And once he gets a hold of critical race theory or whatever, it, it, it's, it loses a lot of his substance. Mm-hmm. Oh, we don't need to we don't need to like be educated by uh celebrities and celebrity politicians and really wealthy people and like actors you know it's like this stuff needs to come from the grassroots level and even from academics who listen to the to the streets listen to the margins are focused on that like are 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 not just these big superstars that everyone loves and they're going to say all the cute things to keep everyone's attention. It's like, so we, we got to stop listening to rich people talk about critical race theory and, and intersectionality and classism. And we got to start listening to the, to, to the, to the grassroots level, to professors who are on the grassroots level, just, we got to get a lower vantage. We got to, we got to uh, go lower and listen lower instead of listening higher. Yeah. And I'll just finish with this. Like, you know, we talk a lot about diversity, you know, building racial diversity in our communities and all this stuff and, you know, diversity and inclusion. Um, And that's even hit the church. Like, you know, people are asking like, Oh, are are we, uh, are we a diverse and inclusive church? Do we have enough minorities on staff? And, and, and those are good things to think about and, and, and wrestle with. But, But if you look at the new Testament, like, yeah, they had 
they one of the big issues they were dealing with were okay jews and gentiles oppressor and oppressed communities were coexisting in the church mm-hmm. um and not only that the, one of the largest countercultural narratives in the church was that the rich and the poor were sitting together and you know mm-hmm. that's why you have exhortations in the epistles to say you know when um don't preferentially give up your seat for this rich man you know who comes in with fine clothes you, you know and I, I just want to challenge churches like you know maybe your church is racially diverse like that's great that's honestly still pretty hard in 2020 is your church economically diverse um mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a question i don't think we ask enough mm-hmm. and because like jesus said the poor you'll always have with you <laughs> you know mm-hmm. this idea that economic inequality and, and inequity really is like it's been in every society from the beginning it's the, the first to come in it's the first inequity to come into a society and it's probably the last to leave um so i don't know I, that doesn't sit well with me for some strange reason uh because it's like okay we've got the poor folks in the room um but they're still poor well well no no, no. Here, here's what i'm i'm going with that yeah. it's the idea of are you listening to them do you have a good understanding of why they're poor and i, I think i think that's what i'm just echoing kind of what and are they leading you yeah, and, and are they in positions are of they leading you oh okay okay in terms yeah, of like I think a, that's a, yeah. a reform or something like that I yeah, hope it's for reform. It's not just like they're just there. Oh, no, it's not tokenism. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah because yeah. I was like, what's the point if they're there and they're just poor? Yeah, because you, you, uh, you look at most modern elder boards. Mm-hmm. They're just What is an rich. elder board? Oh, like a, the group uh, of um, like people leading a church. In, a, yes. in an oh. evangelical church, you know, even if like? you have like a, think, think, a pastor. Think of, a, think of a non-profit with a board of directees or a board, a board of a... Uh, directors okay or yeah uh that that's a that's a uh that's an elder board in a church okay okay cool yeah yeah um and uh they're normally all of them are normally just really wealthy people in the community Mm -hmm. that have access to different culture power plays so that the church can be helped along to make you know what i mean like so um, and even in smaller churches, they're normally the mo- it's normally an aristocracy, if I'm honest. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, and so yeah, are you, do your elder boards have poor people on them? You know, is, is your pastor poor? You know, and and not that they stay there because now they're hopefully making a salary, but uh, but yeah, it's like are they influencing the lifeblood of the church? So that people are voting different, people are thinking oh, different, yeah, people are yeah. approaching politics different. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Joel's kind of getting. Okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, but, yeah. we've got to wrap up here, but uh, Jonathan, yeah. thanks for coming. For uh, sure. Is there anything we can uh, add to our show notes to kind of promote your work? Um, do you have any public platforms that you'd like to oh, share? Yeah, I mean, like you can follow me on Goodreads. Occasionally I have like scathing reviews of books that I read. Um, <laughs> nice. So you get like an idea of like uh, what is going on in Jonathan's mind because like obviously... Um, I don't get, I don't say everything that I have going in my head, not mm-hmm. saying that that should be the case. Thank God people are spared. Um, but uh, you can also, uh, so there's, Joel and I are part of this group uh, where Malayalis for Black Lives Matter is an organization started by people from our ethnic group, uh, ethno-linguistic group, to fight for uh, black lives in the United States. 
And within that, we have a page, uh, malayalisforblacklivesmatter.com. It's the whole thing you have to type out. And in that, I do have. Uh, I am going to be submitting more publications. I already have one out on decolonizing the Malabari mind, and that's specifically targeted towards the Malayali population. I know maybe that's not majority of a demographic, um, but yeah, those are the main things. And then my Instagram at Joe Thesis, J Y O T H E S I S. You can follow me there as well. Uh, occasionally, I may have stories. But I am not much of a social media person. Uh, so hopefully when I start publishing papers, uh, I can circulate it through the Model Minority Show. But it was a true pleasure for y'all to hear. Just calls the Model Minority? The Moral Minority, sorry. <laughs> it's funny because hey. we, we make fun <laughs> yeah, of yeah. the Model Minority man. <laughs> exactly, exactly. My bad, my bad. Moral Minority. It's just like, yeah. yeah. And we got to have you on more, man. This was, uh, this was so rich. Mm-hmm. And this is, this, these are the type of politics I like to talk. <laughs> no, it was a pleasure. It was great to see your insight um, and mm-hmm. hear uh, specifically about your experience with the church because this is this is one way I'd never really spoken about. So I was a bit nervous coming onto the show. I was like, "Oh, Christianity, church." Like, <laughs> okay, because <laughs> for me, my uh, politics is not informed by my religion necessarily, uh, but it was interesting to think of it in a certain way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. And, and listeners, as always, thanks for listening. We'll have the links to uh, Jothis's work in the show notes, and hopefully we'll have him back. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening to The Moral Minority Show, um, where we are going through a series on Black Lives Matter. Um, this may be the last episode in the series, uh, I think this is. And so stay tuned. We are going to be doing some work behind the scenes to plan ahead to see what's next. Um, But yeah, keep connected with us on social media. Uh, Keep sharing with your friends. Let's keep building this community. And and feel free to email us if you have any questions. Reach out to us on Twitter or or, um, maybe potentially in the future Instagram uh, with questions or pushback or anything. We'd love that engagement. Yeah. So thanks for listening.